Father, we thank you that you have provided for our so great salvation through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask tonight that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the great truth of the resurrection. Help us understand this resurrection event and place it into the context of your historical plan and also to contrast it and compare it with um, the alternatives that Satan has tried to uh, create uh, in history to bury and cover it up. That we be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you'll turn in the, uh, in the New Testament tonight to Matthew chapter 28, um, we're going to deal with the uh, unbelieving responses to the resurrection event. Um, we have, uh, throughout the years that we've gone through this framework, I've tried to emphasize that each one of these events have always instilled a response. And the first uh, foundational events in Scripture, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant, basically the world has tried to forget and to bury it, uh, has mythologized it, uh, ridiculed it, and in all ways try to discredit uh, these events. And the reason for that is because these events are revelation of truths that are hated and that the flesh, the fallen nature, uh, is at enmity with God. And carnal mind cannot be subject to the authority of Scripture. And so it always seeks in its perversity of creation, a, a creative, creative perversity, to generate some alternate explanations for all this. And it behooves us as Christians to know the tactics of the enemy and to understand when these things uh, are attacked, why and how they are. Then during the next stage of history, we said that during this period, um, we have a period of time when the world is offended by the disruption, the idea that there can be one and only one group of people having the truth. That's disruptive. That's not democratic. Uh, we haven't taken a Gallup poll on this. We haven't approved it as a democratic society. And so this is offensive to people. Uh, and then we could go on and on, but what we're really doing now is in this year, and, and last part of last year, is studying the life of Christ. And we said that right from the very start, as Jesus said, what do men say I am? Who do men say I am? And then the disciples said, well, it's this and that. And he said, well, who do you say I am? In other words, Jesus Christ, as all previous revelation, engenders a response. So we've studied his birth. We've studied his life. We've studied his death. And now we're looking at the resurrection. The birth, we said the issue there was the fact that given the nature of man, the nature of God, the act of creation, can you have the creator-creature distinction come together in one person? And the issue there, the, the litmus test, is how people deal with the virgin birth claim. And people answered that claim, that charge, with a cover-up, which was the fact that fornication was involved. So the explanation of the world is it was an act of fornication. Then we come to the life of Christ, 
And because unbelief cannot stand the portrait of Jesus presented in the four Gospels, it tries to explain the four Gospels in terms of a spin. So we could say that the response here is a lying spin. The church, in other words, created the New Testament and created the own, or its own portrait of Jesus. Then we come to the death of Christ. And as we studied there, the response is, oh, that was an accident. Something went wrong. We'll see more of that tonight. Or a martyrdom. Now, tonight, we're going to deal with the response to the resurrection. So, this is the scandal of the gospel. And you can't be neutral about this. We either accept the claims, or we say there was an act of fornication with a cover-up by the church and an accidental death. This is the alternative explanation of Jesus Christ. And it's good to know these things because it forces people off the fence sitting. People like to sit on the fence here. They can't. You either sit on one side of the fence or you're on the other side of the fence. And it's good to know uh, at least how the world system responds to this. Because you'll get people all the time and say, well, I don't believe there was any fornication. Well, then what's, you believe in the virgin birth? Well, no, I don't really believe in the virgin birth. Well, then what's your explanation? So it, it propels a response. Well, tonight we're going to study the responses to the resurrection. And the first response to the resurrection is found right in Matthew chapter 28. This is one of the first uh, responses to this event. And in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 28, it says, Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So, see, right around, see, see what's going on here. Now, we're going to have a little smoke-filled room discussion. How do we handle this hot potato politically? Um... The world is a dark place, and even in your own groups, in your own businesses, your own things, I'm sure you've seen similar things. Um, people who are in charge of things in the world usually don't like truth, because the world is a, is a nasty place to be truth, because if you adhere to truth, you're always, seems, you're always at conflict somehow with the world system. And so, oftentimes you'll see where leaders only want to hear the good side of something. Never want to hear a problem. That's why no problems get fixed. Because many of the leaders always want the good story. I don't want to hear bad news. I just want to hear good news. Well, then you're not going to hear how to solve a problem because you don't even know you got one. And that's how a lot of stupid decisions get made. It's really not that they're made. They're just avoided until the last minute when the whole thing starts to unravel and somebody calls it. The other kind of situation you'll see in senior level leadership in the world is this kind of uh, sneaky business that goes on here in Matthew 28. Don't cope with the problem. Don't confront the problem. Let's just cover it up for now. We're worried about political fallout here. And so that's what the story is. And right here in the pages of the New Testament, you see one of these little conferences, the backroom powwows. So they assembled, and now we got the money for the payoff, see. Large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. 
See the deals going on here? I mean, nothing has changed down to the present day. The wheeling and the dealing in the back room still goes on. It goes on in our country, goes on in every country on earth. Goes on in big corporation after big corporation. Same thing. Goes on in small businesses. It's the same kind of stuff that goes on. And it was going on here. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews. And notice the last clause in this verse. Widely scattered among the Jews, spread among the Jews, and to this day. To what day? The day of the writing of Matthew. So we have here the first attempt at explaining away the resurrection. Obviously, this is a claim. We've explained away the birth of Jesus as fornication. We've explained away the portrait of Jesus as a lying spin put, onto the, put out by the church. We've explained the death as, a, as an accidental martyr type thing. Now we've got to explain this absurd thing called the resurrection. So they can't get hold of the body, so the nearest thing they can do is pay off the guards. So this is one of the payoffs. Payoffs to the soldiers to spread a false issue. They've silenced them with a little cash. Always follow the money. It was here, it's still here today. Pay them off, get them out of here, let's shut up. We don't need this kind of story going around. It's too controversial, and so on. Okay, on page 104, I quote John Chrysostom, who shows you that when his dates, 347 to 407 AD, here's 300 years later, this theft theory is still going on. Because Chrysostom, in his, his the third or fourth century here now, he's talking, notice what he's doing. He's having also to deal with the theft theory. So it was a theory that had a lifespan of at least four centuries. And he said... Indeed, even this is, see, he's trying to prove, show the resurrection was true over against the false claim. I'm just citing Christism here just to show that the Matthew 28 theft theory was still prevalent in Christism's day. Christism has to address it. So he says, for indeed, even this establishes the resurrection. But this is the language of men confessing that the body was not there. When therefore they confess the body wasn't there, but the stealing of it is shown to be false and incredible by their watching it, and by the seals, and by the timidity of the disciples, the proof of the resurrection, even hence, appears incontrovertible. Who is it that they're paying off here? Notice in Matthew 28. The very people that were to prevent the theft. So now, that's why it had to be a large sum to the guards. Because basically they had to say that they were derelict in their guarding duties. They so screwed up that, gee, you know, I mean, these unarmed, untrained, amateur Palestinians come in against the armed guards, all trained, and take away a body. Oh, what were these guys doing? They must have had Xanax in their iced tea or something all night. So, the point is that here we have a plot that is so incredible, and Christism laughs at it in the 4th century. Here you're paying off the very people you paid in the first place to guard the body. And then the, the little cute thing that they added on was that in verse 14, if it should come to the governors, we'll win them over. In other words, don't worry guys, you admit you screwed up, but we'll cover for you. Okay. That's the theft theory. Pretty easy to comprehend and so forth. Now, on page 105, we're going to cite some more things. This is the more common explanation of the resurrection. 
It is an hallucination. There are a thousand different varieties of this one, but you can categorize it for your own thinking and vocabulary. It's just the hallucination class of explanations. Now, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in Scripture is there's notices in the details of the Gospels that look at first glance like innocent little things sewn in the text. But the, I believe the Holy Spirit sewed those things in the text because being omniscient, he knows exactly what goes on in men's hearts and he knows the kind of, of garbage and perversity that people come up to try to cover over these things. Um, I'm sure this is one reason why in the Gospel of John and in some of the other Gospels, uh, there's that little funny story about Jesus and his mother. It always seems like every time Jesus and his mother appear in the Gospels, it's not uh, a relationship that gives you confidence that Mary does much intercession successfully. Now, why do you suppose that is in the four Gospels? Because what has happened in church history to make Mary the great intercessor? Well, that's because of the Roman Catholicism. If you look at Roman Catholicism, what you see is a redesign of the Trinity after an Italian family. Mama goes to Daddy and tries to get intercede for the sons. It's a big Italian family. And so the Italian-Roman connection thinks of the Trinity operating the same way. Except if you look at the scriptures, Mary wasn't successful most of the times when she goes to Jesus in the scriptures about intercession. And that is one of those little stories. Well, here's another interesting case. Turn to John 20, verse 5. This is one of those little notices. Peter comes into the tomb, or John comes into the tomb faster than Peter, and this is John's own report of what he sees in the tomb. Stopping, he looked in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter came, following him, entered the tomb, and beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, why would a little incidental detail like that be put in the text? What does that tell us about the resurrection? That it's as though the Lord, when he was resurrected, took this funeral cap off, folded it up, and put it aside. I mean, this is not a hallucination going on. This is just, it's a detail that one who's hallucinating about the mysterious absence of Jesus here wouldn't necessarily think of some little detail like that. It's those little details that make this evidence credible. And it occurs in several places. Uh, we've already gone to that Luke passage that I cite in the notes where uh, he appears in the room and people, you know, just are blown away and... And he says, come here. And remember the Thomas incident? That's in John. And the doubting Thomas. And here, put your hand in my side. And by the way, it's in my side. So it was a deep wound. And see my saying, Those are all the little details. And I believe the Holy Spirit puts those in the text to deliberately make it as difficult as possible for anyone to explain this away as an hallucination. And then we have 1 Corinthians 15. That's a passage you want to remember. If you don't have that 
in your mind prominently. Write it down in the notes. It's cited here in the notes several times. But that 1 Corinthians 15 is a major passage. It's the major New Testament passage. It cites all the evidences. It shows you how many people, 500 people saw Jesus. You know, they must have all been smoking something and were hallucinated at the same time. And that's how they thought Jesus rose from the dead. So, this is a case of the New Testament building the truthfulness and the validity of the resurrection. But to show you that the hallucination theory is alive and well, on page 105 of the notes, I have this big long citation from Carl F. H. Henry. Now, Carl Henry has done a lot of good theology in the 20th century. It was Carl Henry who, after World War II, along with Billy Graham, Harold John Ockengay from Boston, and uh, Barnhouse from Philadelphia, these are the guys that basically are responsible for y'all being here. Because those are the men who held the line when there was a very long, thin thread after the modernist debacle back in the 20s and 30s that had totally crushed uh, scholarship of a conservative bent. And those guys held on to it. Carl F. H. Henry became the editor of Christianity Today, and he was the one who, over the years, stood up in, in every forum in the country, intellectually, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, a man of good courage. And by the way, his background wasn't uh, clergy. Carl F. H. Henry wasn't a clergyman. Carl F. H. Henry was a reporter. He was trained as a journalist. And that's why this story is interesting. So let's, if you'll follow the quote, uh, keep in mind what I'm trying to show in this quote. This is to show you how modern theologians handle the resurrection. So you won't be fooled when you hear somebody talk about, oh, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. These guys all do. Not the resurrection you hopefully believe in, or I do. But they're using these words. And that's why you can go to any church, first liberal church anywhere, and you can be fooled on Easter morning because 99 out of 100 are all talking about the resurrection. Resurrection this, resurrection that. But they don't mean what you mean. So follow this, if you will, and let's look at what Karl Barth. This is a, uh, inter, uh, uh, a conversation that happened between Karl F. H. Henry and Karl Barth. Karl Barth along with Boltmann and some other men, they're the men who were the titans of 20th century liberal theology in America and Europe. They built it. They are the guys who taught the guys who teach clergy in seminaries, except for some of the conservative Bible-based seminaries. So these are, the, these are the giants. I mean, when I was studying at MIT, I remember one of the big speakers they had with Paul Tillich came over down the river from Harvard there. And, and he had filled the auditorium with a, with a lecture on the absurdity of the question whether God exists. And, you know, the Christians say, oh, gee, that's great. And actually, what Paul Tilt was talking about was a vague concept that he identified to be God. But it wasn't the God of the Scriptures. Watch this. When the question period began, in other words, he had gone to hear a lecture by Karl Barth, and it was a press conference, and people from United Press, Associated Press, and the radio stations were all there to hear this eminent European theologian from Switzerland. I guess he's from Switzerland, yeah. When this question period began, I asked about the factualness, the historicity of the resurrection. See, Henry? You see, this is a good model for us. Here's a mentor, and it's right for us to ask questions. It's right for us to ask questions aggressively in any public forum going. 
And he's doing this. But notice how, this is a skillful question. Watch how he sets up Bart. Over at the table are newspaper reporters, I noted. The religion editor of United Press International, the religious news service correspondent, and religion editors of the Washington Papers. If they had these present responsibilities in the first century, it's present reportorial responsibilities. I was sleepy when I was typing this. Was the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of such a nature that covering it would have fallen into the area of their reportorial responsibility? Why did he ask the question this way? Well, let's stop right there. Let's think. Why is Henry asking the question sort of in a, in a kind of convoluted way? Why doesn't he just ask Bart, do you believe in the resurrection? Why doesn't he ask it that way? Because the guy would say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. And nothing would be clarified. So here's a mentoring example of how you want to carefully, you've got to know enough about the other side so you don't get smoke blown in your face. Oftentimes you get smoke anyway. But you've got to ask a question crisply, politely, courteously, graciously, but skillfully. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to find out what's going on with this person. Do they or don't they believe? And here's an example where he doesn't come up and ask them, Oh, do you believe in the rest? Oh, you do? Oh, okay. You're a Bible-believing Christian. No, he's not a Bible-believing Christian. But you're not going to tell that by asking a simple question. So he's pinning him down. He says, look, they're the reporters, and I'm asking you, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, are you saying that you believe the resurrection such that United Press International will report it as a news story, as something that happened? We might say, uh, if there were people here with the cameras, Dr. Bart. Do you believe in the resurrection such that those video cameras would record it? That's what we have to add. That's the question. And that's why you heard me back years ago when we went through the Sinai thing. Do you believe Moses and the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I believe Moses and the Ten Commandments. Do you believe the Ten Commandments so that if you had a tape recording at the foot of Sinai, it would have recorded in Hebrew God speaking? Is that what you believe? Well, no, I don't. Moses went up in the mountain. He, he had this inspiring thought. And they brought it all down to the people. That's what I believe. Well, that's not what the text says. The text says God spoke in the Hebrew language, so a million people heard it. You see, it's easy to say Moses got this idea of the Ten Commandments. Because we can, you know, it's, you know some geniuses exist in history. But if, on the other hand, you make the claim that the Ten Commandments came such that you could tape record it in Hebrew in the middle of a mountain valley of a voice coming down from the mountain, now you've got a problem. Now all of a sudden we've got a God who speaks and reveals himself in history. Ooh, tough stuff here now. So that's why this quote is important. It gives you an example of a wisely asked question. And watch what happens. Bart's stuck now, see? He can't squirm out of this one. Since I had identified... That is, was it news in history in the sense in which man in the street understands new in history? Bart became angry. You bet he became angry. All of a sudden, the cloth got ripped off here. Now he's got to expose himself by admitting in front of the United Press International 
and the news reporters and the religious editors of all the Washington papers what the guy really believes. Bart became angry. And since I had identified myself as editor of Christianity Today, he retorted, did you say Christianity Today or Christianity Yesterday? Rather taken back, I replied only by quoting the scripture text, yesterday, today, and forever. Certainly a hurried misappropriation. Bart then responded to the question obliquely by saying, the resurrection had significance for the disciples of Jesus Christ. It was to the disciples that he appeared. But that wasn't in the question at all. On the way out, the United Press correspondent remarked to me, we got his answer. His answer was no. But had he not done that, would a United Press reporter who hadn't gotten into the details of theology, would he have picked up what was going on? No. But on the 6 o'clock news, Bart's a believer. Because the reporters aren't trained to pick this up. So it has to be smoked out with clever questions, driving them to the point where they must admit what they don't believe. Karl Barth, so, so he rejected the fact of the resurrection. Now, a quote from Clark Pinnock, who I wouldn't quote today so much as for... This is the early Clark Pinnock, getting kind of off in his recent books. The offensive character of the resurrection, didn't use the spell check, I can see. The offensive character of the resurrection as a literal event, reversing the normal course of nature. Notice how careful Pinnock is here, because he's dealing with Greece again. This theological slime and Greece from liberalism. So you've got to get specific. So he says, in the decomposition of a body and death remains equally strong for the new theology. The insistence of both Tillich and Boltmann on its symbolic, non-literal meaning is well known. Tillich admits the existentialist encounters which led the disciples to apply the resurrection as a symbol to Jesus crucified. He even lists the physical theory as a possible explanation for faith, but candidly he regards it as a crude rationalization developed rather late in the first century. Remember what we said? What did we say? That the life of Jesus, the portrait of Jesus Christ that you see in the Bible, where did it come from? It didn't come from Jesus. It came from the church that invented this, embellished this Jewish carpenter story and got more and more uh, miracles attached to it until finally the picture of Jesus that we get out of the Bible is just the result of the spin the church put on it. That's why he says in this thing, late in the first century. Say it took him decades to generate all this material. He much prefers a new theory on his own, which he wishes to distinguish from the simple psychological explanation. The real miracle was the creation of faith in the new being. That's Tillich's code word for God. The orthodox alternative, look at this. The orthodox alternative he treats with disdain as, quote, absurdity compounded with blasphemy. Now, get a load of this. This is perversion. Same kind of perversion going on today. I mean, we can tolerate everything except the truth. And the truth is identified as falsehood. He not only says that we're wrong as orthodox people, he's saying that we're blaspheming. Excuse me? On what criteria are you saying that I'm blaspheming? thought we got rid of all the Bible. Perhaps it is more apt to turn this pejorative expression into the imp onto the implications of his own thesis, which depicts the disciples confusing their inner experience with an event in the past, deceiving both themselves and the Christian sense. So, now we begin to pick up the theories of handling this resurrection event. We've got the theft, 
theory. Now we have the hallucination theory. Now back 20 or 30 years ago, Hugh Schoenfield came out with a book called The Passover Plot. You still see this around. And from time to time, you'll read about it uh, when the reporters in Time and Newsweek have nothing else to do and they're assigned to do some religious thing and they'll go dig around and find Schoenfield's book and they'll bring it out, trot it out every 15 years because everybody forgot 15 years ago what it was and now it's a new theory. So this shows up from time to time. And I'm quoting from this too because, folks, these are the ideas that the people on the sidewalk get half-baked. I'm trying to take you to more to the sources so you know the sources and can identify when you hear these things and you hear people mouthing this stuff, categories should go off. Okay, I know that one. That's the theft theory. And it's sort of nice in the conversation when somebody uh, comes up with one of these ideas uh, when, you know, and they think they're original. And you can say, oh, yeah, that's Christosome theory. I, I've read about that in Christosome. That was in 400 A.D. And it's just kind of a nice way of putting, in, putting them down, getting them out of the way, so you can get the conversation on this in the next topic. It is by no means a novel theory that Jesus was not dead when taken from the cross. Oh, that's, that's nice. And some will have it that he subsequently recovered. Now look at where Schoenfield traces this back to. The idea was used in fiction by George Moore in the book Kenrith and by D.H. Lawrence in The Man Who Died. See? So it goes back in, in the history of literature. We have only to allow that in this, as in other instances, Jesus made private arrangements with someone he could trust who would be in a position to accomplish his design. This, there is no cause to doubt the crucifixion of Jesus or that he had assistance to aid him in his bid for survival. We may accept that one of them was a member of the Sanhedrin. We may agree to speak of him as Joseph of Arimathea, even if we cannot be positive this was his name. The first stage of the present action was the cross. We're told that there was bystanders there, that one of them saturated a sponge with vinegar. There was nothing unusual for a vessel containing refreshing liquid to be at the place of exhaustion, and it presented no problem to doctor the drink that was offered to Jesus. Directly it was seen the drug had worked. The man hastened to Joseph, who was anxiously awaiting for the news. At once he sought an audience with Pilate, requested the body of Jesus. Jesus lay in the tomb over the Sabbath. He would not regain consciousness for many hours. In the meantime, spices and linen bandages provide the best dressing for his injuries. A plan was being followed which was worked out in advance by Jesus himself and which he had not divulged to his close disciples. Evidently, he didn't disclose it to any of the disciples because we don't read any of it in the New Testament. Must have disclosed it just to Hugh. A plan was being followed which was worked out. What seems probable is that in the darkness of Saturday night, when Jesus was brought out of the tomb by those concerned in the plan, he regained consciousness temporarily but finally succumbed. Now the problem is, how do you simulate resurrections if Jesus died from his wounds? Oh, and the, another thing here that I don't have time to go in the quote, the problem was that Jesus didn't count in the plot, the, the conspirators here didn't figure that the soldier was going to throw a spear. And that was an accident that happened and that kind of screwed up their plans. Like, and, and by the way, this is something else to observe. Watch the text. You know, our God is so smart and so slick in the way he, he moves. The one thing that happened to Jesus that didn't happen to the other guys was that the soldier 
conspirator. You see, the conspiracy theory has a problem with that. So when you read these theories, all of a sudden you realize they, they paid pages. To, oh, and how do we explain the fact that, gee, you know, the plan went awry because the soldier threw the spear. But in the real event, God had the soldier throw the spear so that the observation in the text says water and blood came out and that gives an idea of the severity of the wound and the condition of Jesus medically. So yeah, the soldier threw the spear and he had no conscience, uh, consciousness of no voice said go throw the spear. God wasn't pulling like a puppet on that soldier to throw the spear. In just God's marvelous way, he is so sovereign, and yet he allows for this human response. That soldier, at exactly the right time, did something that he didn't do to the other two guys. And it was exactly the kind of thing that produced the evidence for the genuineness of the crucifixion. But so it's, he has a problem with it, because obviously if Jesus died and the plot went wrong, now we've got a problem. How, do we see he, how does he rise from the dead? A likely explanation of the circumstances that all along, beginning with a young man first seen at the tomb by the women, who was an angel, by the way, one and the same man was being seen, and he was not Jesus. This man was bent on filling what was perhaps a promise to Jesus when he lay dying after his removal from the tomb. There was no deliberate untruth in the witness of the followers of Jesus to his resurrection. <laughs> get a load of this. After you get through all this, now you've got the whole thing as a big fabrication. So now you've got Christianity built on a total fabrication at its core. So now he has to back up and say, well, well, yeah, because he wants to keep the morals. He wants to keep the good things of Christianity. So now he's got to have a problem here now with all this. There was no deliberate untruth in the witness of the followers of Jesus to his resurrection. On the evidence they had, the conclusion they reached seemed inescapable. Neither had there been any fraud on the part of Jesus himself. He had schemed in faith for his physical recovery, and what he expected had been frustrated by circumstances quite beyond his control. You see what's happening here? Here we have an act, the resurrection, that is being sucked up. You know that picture I keep drawing up here with like the amoeba? And here we have the resurrection, and what's happening to unbelief? It's surrounding it. Yes, it's a stupid thing, we can laugh at it, but you see what unbelief is trying to do? It's trying to get a grip on this whole thing and explain the whole thing away. It always does that. Watch for that. It's always either we strategically envelop it with the Word of God, or unbelief strategically envelops it. One or the other wins. Okay, so that's the ways in which unbelief denies the resurrection. But what I want to also show you is that even if we prove the factuality of the resurrection, unbelief still has a way around it. Now this is one of the brilliance that I, uh, of Van Til's insights, um, who taught apologetics many years at Westminster up here in Philadelphia. And that is, he emphasized again and again that we Christians have to be careful that we don't deal with isolated facts. You can't say, Look, let's concentrate on the resurrection. See, here's the, here's the resurrection fact. We've got this one fact, and we focus everybody's attention on this one thing. And then maybe over here we have the virgin birth, or over here we have something else. What Van Til warns against is that if you stick an isolated fact from the Scripture out here into the world, what strategic envelopment is going to happen? It's going to be enveloped. Just like we've seen here. 
with some crazy idea. So even if the world had proof that Jesus did rise from the dead, they would seek to neutralize it. Why? Because the carnal mind is what? At enmity with God. It can't stand the truth. So it's got to always, everywhere, all the time, envelop it and try to neutralize it. So I had this one section in here because we want to look at, uh, anticipate a move on the part of the opposition. Okay. On page 108, here's the dialogue in, from Van Til's book. And it's, it's kind of a neat little story here. He, in the context of this fascinating book, uh, I gave a home Bible study or home discussion on this book one time years ago. And he has a section in here on the conversation of three men, Mr. White, Mr. Black, and Mr. Gray. Mr. White is a Bible-believing Christian. Mr. Black is an overt unbeliever. Mr. Gray wants to walk on both sides of the fence. And it's a fascinating series of conversations between Mr. White, Mr. Black, and Mr. Gray. Well, here is Mr. Black responding to Mr. White and Mr. Gray's ideas of the resurrection. Just follow this a moment. Page 108. Now, as for accepting the resurrection of Jesus, continue Mr. Black, as thus properly separated from the traditional system of theology. See what he's saying? In other words, I don't accept the spin about the resurrection. I don't accept that. But just considering it as an isolated fact of history, it's something mysterious happened in the tomb to this one body. I don't in the least mind doing that. To tell the truth, I've accepted the resurrection as a fact for some time. The evidence for it is overwhelming. This is a strange universe. All kinds of miracles happen in it. The universe is open. So, why should not there be some resurrections here and there? The resurrection of Jesus would be a fine item for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Why not send it in? See what he's done? Isolated the resurrection. What do we say as we start this chapter about the resurrection? It has to be considered in the light of prophetic. Remember we went back in the Old Testament and fit the resurrection into the Old Testament? In that passage of all passages, 1 Corinthians 15, notice how Paul says, We delivered first unto you how Christ rose from the dead according to the, the Scriptures according to the scriptures. Paul did not just go talk about an isolated event that occurred in the city of Jerusalem with one tomb and one body, as though it could have happened to anybody. It just happened to happen to the Jewish carpenter's body, but it could have happened to Mr. Jones' body, it could have happened to Mr. Frank's body. See that? See that? that takes it away from the overall context. That's what we're talking about. Now, if you'll, if you'll turn to Exodus 32, I want you to see the perversity and deceitfulness of trying to explain away things of Scripture. And people will say, well, I mean, if, if you could prove the resurrection factually, why, well, I would believe. And the answer is, no, you wouldn't, not apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to open minds. The Holy Spirit may use a good argument. The Holy Spirit may use a bad argument. The Holy Spirit may use Scripture. The Holy Spirit may use your testimony in someone's life. The Holy Spirit may use a book. The Holy Spirit has many different ways He can work, as we've all seen. I mean, how many people in this room came to Christ the same way? I'll bet you we had a testimony here tonight of every person who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us trusted Him differently, under different circumstances, with different things, and some of them just incredible. 
incredible stories of how we were led to the Lord. And that's the Holy Spirit. So the point is, the Holy Spirit has to open a heart. It doesn't mean don't have a good message. Don't make, it doesn't mean don't make the gospel clear. It just says, after you've said that, after you've said that, and you've done your very best to give the very best testimony, the very clearest message you could possibly give, even after all that, that itself, apart from the Holy Spirit, will not regenerate a heart, will not bring conviction. We always have to prayerfully depend on the Lord to do that. So here, in, here is a classic in Exodus 32. What have the people, in verse 1, just seen? They just experienced. They walked through the, dead, the, the Red Sea on dry land. They saw the greatest superpowers military machine wrecked, drowned in the Dead Sea. They just heard the word of God speaking from Sinai so forcibly, they said, oh, Moses, we don't want you know, tell him to turn it off. You go up there and talk to him. Put the fear of God into all them. So, this is what these people experienced. Okay? Did they have any doubt in the factuality of the Exodus? Did they have any doubt in the factuality of God speaking from Sinai? Or the, or the noise they heard from Sinai? Well, now look at what happens here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, I mean, like, you know, like he stayed there a million years, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses and the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said, Tear off the gold rings and so on. The people tore off their gold rings. And it's, it's, it's humorous in the Hebrew. He took them from his hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf, and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Were they denying the factualness of the Exodus? No. But what had they already begun to do? Here we go. Took the fact of the, of the uh, Exodus and they began to envelop it in a framework of unbelief. Now it wasn't the God of Scripture that had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the new God that they had made. A God of their own understanding. That they've got the explanation now. By human speculation, apart from divine revelation, we have come up with a final explanation for the Exodus. And here it is. So they create their own God. And so forth. So, this is a dramatic illustration from real history of how within a matter of days and months after real revelation, historical revelation, a clear message with God himself speaking in Hebrew, not just Moses, this is what happens. So, it's amazing. It's an indictment of all of our sin natures. What our sin nature is capable of doing is amazing. And we will look back from eternity in the presence of the Lord and say, how could I have been so stupid and so blind as to struggle with this Word of God thing? Where was my head? Okay. Now I want to move on tonight because I want to finish this section. Uh, if you'll turn to page 108 in your notes. We want to summarize why it, and turn to Acts 17 in the New Testament. So if you turn to Acts 17 and page 108 in the notes. We want to summarize what is behind 
What is offensive about the resurrection in particular? Now, everything about the Word of God is offensive, but what we want to deal with is what is the particular area of offense? Where does this threaten people with? You know, I think we ought to write, you know, you know what the world's um, most threatening piece of literature is? It's the Bible. <laughs> Look at all the lawyers squirm when you bring it out. And it's just proof positive of the offense of the Word of God to, to the unregenerate heart. Well, what is offensive in particular? Let's look at Acts 17, verse 30, 31 and 32. Because Paul is using the resurrection in this Areopagus address, and he's not talking about the cross. It always fascinates me that here's a gospel presentation, but no mention of the cross of Christ. And if you did this today, I'm sure in a lot of fundamental circles, people say, well, you never got to the gospel because the cross, you never mentioned the cross. That's right. Why didn't Paul mention the cross? Think. What was the issue? Why do people put a false spin on the cross? What's, what's the hidden background issue to the cross? The justice of God. So if people don't have any sense of the justice of God, you can talk cross, cross, cross until you're blue in the face, and there's no need for the cross, so they're not hearing you. There's no need for the cross because I'm okay. You're okay. All we have to do is repent a bit and feel sorry, and we're going to be accepted to God. Don't need all this blood stuff. Remember the Muslim the other night? He put a tape on here and he says, all that what's the mechanics? Don't have to go through all that mechanics. Well, here Paul is going to deal not with a cross because that's an advanced truth. But he goes to the resurrection, but it's not resurrection is an isolated fact. Notice how he weaves it in. Verse 30, he says. Therefore, overlooking the times of ignorance, that is, the times of the Gentiles, God is now declaring to men. In other words, he didn't do this before. This is new. He's declaring to all men everywhere, all culture groups, all linguistic groups, this is an absolute cultural... Oh, how would the relativists put this? I bet you they would call this cultural imperialism. Because... This is going to every people group. Why, you're, you're not being considerate of these people? Why, they've got their own... He's saying that God says that you're all dwelling in a time of ignorance. Ever since the fall away in Babel with Noah, the whole Noahic civilization has been in ignorance. Now, he's calling to all men that they should repent. And why? Because, now watch the framework. Here's the sandwich for the resurrection. And this is why the resurrection is not treated as isolated event. Here's the resurrection. But it's bracketed inside a structure. What is the structure in Acts 17 that is the, re the resurrection is set into? Look what he does. Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see that the resurrection is put into a larger frame of reference of the end of history. And what does that mean? The ultimate accountability. Here all men are accountable. Ultimate accountability. 
So that's the context of the resurrection. Now that tips us off as to why there's a grand conspiracy to cover up the resurrection. If the resurrection is clearly perceived and truthfully perceived, it is a reminder to the human heart that this is going to happen to you. This is the unavoidable last stop on this train. The resurrection is where everybody gets off. And the resurrection is the end of the story. And you're coming to the end of the story. And you're going to have to give an accounting at the end of the story. Don't want to hear that. And so, what do they say? Verse 32. And when they heard the resurrection, they began to sneer. So, Paul had a problem. Did he fail in his evangelism? No. He no more failed than you do when you witness to your members of your own family that are the hardest ones to witness to anyways than people in your own family. And you feel thwarted. You feel defeated. Look at Paul. How many people in Jesus' own brothers and sisters believed on him while he was alive? From what we can tell, <laughs> there's no report in the New Testament. They doubted him. What's the matter? He didn't live a Christ-like life? In his own family? Surely not. It was because of the blindness, the timing of the Holy Spirit, and everything else. So, the point is that when you see the resurrection in Scripture, remember verse 31. It is set in the context of the end times. It is a signal that the last chapter of history is now being written. Okay, now, if you go from there to the notes a minute, we'll conclude. As a preview, down the bottom, page 108, as a preview of the ultimate goal of history, the resurrection confronts each one of us with our future permanent state. Now, we're going to get into the doctrine of the resurrection in a little bit, but to preview that so that you get the full force of what I'm saying here, is if you remember back when I did that uh, diagram on the good evil and it was split and I have that split in the road it goes like that at that split right here that is where permanence takes place in other words at that point we have a permanent status quo Never, ever, ever, ever to be changed again. No more falls. And no more grace. And no more gospel. And no more redemption. Permanent status quo. And that's what the resurrection does. The resurrection seals the doom of the damned. And it seals the security of those who are saved. It is a very sobering thing when it's considered in life. And I'm doing this because a few more weeks you're going to hear all kinds of Easter sermons and Easter messages. And it's nice and wonderful. But if you listen to them, they're always talking about the resurrection gives hope. Resurrection gives hope. Good, good, good message. Resurrection gives hope. How much hope did it give the Athenians? When the resurrection was preached in its biblical context, yes, it does give hope to those who want fellowship with God forever and ever, yeah. Does it give hope to everyone? No. 
because it's a message of doom. It's a message that resurrection will happen, and once you're resurrected, you're either resurrected unto life or resurrected unto damnation, and once it's happened, no more changes. You can't turn in the ticket. No refunds. It's all over. And that's very sobering to, to understand that. And it's that permanence, that sudden end of choice that is so scary about resurrection. I have a quote, two quotes here from uh, uh, Dr. Pilkey about resurrection. One of them we read at the um, Q&A last week. But there's a lot of insight in this. uh, And I want to, the first quote in the top of page 109, uh, deals with the fact that the resurrection kind of thing was anticipated by the Egyptians. Most of you have read about the pyramids, and you know you go down there, and they had all kinds of food in the where the pharaohs were buried, and this kind of thing. Quite clearly, the Egyptians believed in an afterlife, and quite clearly, they believed in a physical afterlife, because they didn't believe that it was spiritual food. I mean, it's real food. The grain is still in there, so they must have anticipated that these guys in these tombs would rise up and be hungry and want something to eat. Now, it's a crude, crude thing, but, but the point is, doesn't it show permanence? And doesn't the Egyptian architecture show uh, the fact that we want to build forever and ever and ever? See, this was known to the sons of Noah in early history. So, if you follow this quote on page 109, the resurrection sheds eternal light on the heroic dimension of human existence. The connection between the grandeur of the Egyptian pyramids and Egyptians' belief about resurrection is quite apparent. Men have always known, through the subjective power of the human spirit, that they are destined for one kind of immortality or another. Those who doubt the resurrection are to be pitied because they have allowed the Iliadic spirit of mortality to take possession of their souls. And I love this sentence. Doubt of the resurrection is the intellectual correlative of simple depression. Doubt of the resurrection is the intellectual correlative of simple depression. Say, in other words, there's no purpose, history's not going anywhere, there's no final goal, etc. The modern materialist skeptics have sunk below the level of the Noahic pagans. Now if you come down to the next quote. And think of this in light of Acts 17, which we just studied. Lewis's approach, he's talking about C.S. Lewis and his rational approach. Lewis's apologetic approach, grounded in reason, is not well adapted to those parts of the world where apostasy has advanced so far that anarchy reigns. We're close to that. And Freud's dark power of the id. Those of you who don't remember Freud, Sigmund Freud, Jewish psychologist and psychiatrist and atheist, had this explanation that the core of all human existence is a sex drive. And he, everything was sexual. And the, uh, deep down, this is the, whole, the whole motif of human existence is sexual. It, the dark power of the id vies for immediate social supremacy. So what he's saying here is that where you basically have paganized societies decaying, the nice gentleman apologetic doesn't often work. Just because you don't have gentlemen. You don't have people willing to sit down and reason together. 
I mean, I'm sure you've all had that experience. The more you get into Scripture and you try to have an intelligent conversation, and these, you know, just don't get it. And that's what he's talking about. Confrontation with such satanic power was especially of Charles Williams. The final form of apologetics, that was a famous Christian author, the final form of apologetics is supernaturalist, apocalyptic, and, notice the third noun, judgmental. It threatens, keep this in mind of Acts 17, it threatens the enemies of Christianity with the consequences of unrepentant death. What's that mean? Going to the end of the station without a ticket. Unrepentant death. And the resurrection reminds us that history is going to come to an end. That's why it is offensive. Now, it's not saying that we have to be gross about it. It's not saying that we have to be nasty when we talk this way. What he's saying is that that's the way Paul acted at Athens. Because he was in a deeply pagan society. And he spoke of the resurrection as the end. And the fact that the end is already ending. Because you've got one guy already going into eternity with a resurrection body. The Lord Jesus. So the end of history is imminent. It threatens the enemies of Christianity with the consequences of unrepentant death, requiring them to choose heaven or hell today and experience one or the other tomorrow. Although most apostates are infuriated by threats of judgment, the human conscience remains open to this very elemental sort of conviction. Blow away the smoke and everybody that down agrees to this. In Christian apologetics, the greatest of all doctrines is the resurrection of the dead. An idea so powerful that it, rather than sex, referring to Freud, holds the key to the mystery of human existence. Wherever the resurrection is clearly conceived as a metaphysical reality. What does he mean by that? It's not a hallucination. It's not just an idea. It's an actual physical thing that takes place in history. A metaphysical reality. Wherever the resurrection is clearly conceived as a metaphysical reality, it annihilates every premise and every conclusion of the Marxist, Freudian, and Darwinian schools of thought. It erases the premise of Marxism by positing a version of humanity independent of the natural food chain. Now, what is he saying there? What's a Marxist basically believe? That economics and material things determine happiness. That's why you want the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's why communist students would give their lives with great dedication to communism and the conquest of the world because they thought they were bringing in a materialist paradise. But the resurrection, the body isn't dependent on food. It's not going to be destroyed because you don't have your orange juice in the morning. The resurrection body doesn't care about a fat wallet. So, the resurrection is a literally existing state of humanity that is independent of all these things that the Marxists and the social engineers are busy dealing with. Resurrection body walks through a wall. I don't care for your doors. So, that's what he means here. It erases the premise of Marxism. 
Next, after the semicolon, it cancels the premise of Freudianism by furnishing a degree of vitality so absolute that temporary sexual euphoria loses all meaning. In other words, this is a permanent, as you were, ecstatic existence. It doesn't depend on what my hormones are doing this morning. It doesn't depend upon my body chemistry. My happiness is built in to the resurrection body because it was built to be in the presence of God. So there's this ecstasy of existence. It cancels the premise of Freudianism. And it destroys the whole point of evolution. This is a great quote. It destroys the whole point of evolution by bringing mankind to absolute physical perfection in an instant of transformation. What does Paul say about that they shall be instantly changed? No million year change. How does that happen? How does it happen? What happens to the molecules? What happens to the energy field? What happens to this decomposed human body? When, boom, all of a sudden it's there. Not a million years. It doesn't even take an hour and 15 minutes. It's suddenly there. And that's what he means. The resurrection, if you conceive of it, look at how powerful this idea is and why it is deeply threatening. Finally, the last page in this section... I just thought that Chuck Colson, I had to throw this quote in here because it's so apropos for our own day, to show how at the fall of the Soviet Union, at the end of the Iron Curtain, what was the subject that was dealt with right smack dab in front of Mikhail Gorbachev as he was reviewing the armies of the Kremlin as they marched by the reviewing stand that all of you remember in the Cold War used to have the military units of the Soviets. They always used to have their rockets and they would walk by, some of them goose-stepping as they went by and you'd have this stogy old group of guys up there in the Kremlin wall all with black coats looking like that and uh, with the red flags. And in the back, you had this fantastic picture of Lenin. And this went on year after year. But look what happened. This didn't make the papers, by the way. As the throng passed directly in front of Gorbachev, standing in his place of honor, the priests hoisted their heavy burdens. This is some Orthodox Christian priests toward the sky. It was a big cross. The cross emerged from the crowd. As it did, the figure of Jesus Christ obscured the giant poster faces of Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and Vladimir Lenin that provided the backdrop of Gorbachev's reviewing stand. And then they began to shout. Mikhail Sergeyev, one of the priests shouted, his deep voice cleaving the clamor of the protesters and piercing straight toward the angry Soviet leader. Mikhail Sergeyev, Christ is risen. In a matter of months, after that final May Day celebration, the Soviet Union officially dissolved. How appropriate. The last military review in front of the Kremlin. Who was it at the end of the parade, but some Christians that held up the cross and said, Christ is risen. And the Soviet Union fell apart. I think that's a wonderful, eloquent portrayal of the role of the resurrection in history. It's one that you won't read in Time magazine, however. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you have provided the reports and the evidences for this resurrection. We thank you that it shows that you keep your promise and that there is coming a day of resurrection. And how sobering it is 
to realize that we will be translated in an instant of time from our present mortal decaying existence of pain, of hardship, of hunger, all of a sudden into a state of eternal fellowship with you, never to see fall or sin again. May you prepare our hearts to anticipate that, welcome it, pray thy kingdom come, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got uh, time for a little Q&A here. Um, okay, we're at the final finishing up here um, in the life of Christ because we're going to get into the doctrine of glorification. That's it. So we probably will have next week, the week after next week, I won't be here. So we'll have to skip a Thursday. But next week we will be here um, working on uh, this last section. So I probably we have maybe four, three or four more classes. And then we're going to be done. And in the fall, we're going to start with uh, the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a whole other area. Okay, are there any um, questions or comments? Tonight? I guess I must have said everything. Yes, Debbie. Ah, you saved this. You what would the Q&A be if Debbie wasn't here to start it? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't, you know, all we have is, is the fact that in Jesus' case, which is the only case we've got to observe, it appears the pieces of his immortal bo- of his mortal body disappeared, which is kind of an interesting observation. There wasn't any skeleton left. There wasn't any flesh left. The linen and everything else was all collapsed. So all the mass that made up his legs, his arms, his torso, and so on was gone. So it, the resurrection body wasn't something that, you know, okay, there's his, resur- na- there's his natural body, and it's decayed, so now the resurrection, in his case. So I would, you know, it seems that he resurrects. Now the problem is, in practical terms, um, we may be carrying carbon molecules from a thousand other people's bodies in our body. Because people decayed and died, and you had chemical decomposition, and uh, people grow food on the lot, and the roots go into the debris from the bodies underneath, and you're eating your carrots, and uh, you know. <laughs> so the point is, uh, <laughs> so, see now, Debbie. <laughs> 
so it gets in all those things. And we, there's been a, a movement uh, in church history. That, uh, that's why the Christians historically have had mixed feelings toward cremation. Um, in, in many worlds, my Japanese daughter-in-law says in Japan, you've got to be cremated. They don't have rooms. They don't have enough people. They don't have enough space for the people to be buried. So you, <laughs> cremation's it. Um, but in some areas, the, the, the pagan cre- cremation, um, I, I've read, and I've never been able to chase this down, but there's been pagan notions of trying to prevent the resurrection by cremating. That it was, it was conceived as a method to defy God. You're not going to resurrect me to damnation because I'm going to burn the body. You're never going to get the pieces left. So there's that theme. I don't think that militates against uh, cremation for the reason that cremation, yeah, reduces the body to ash, but what is the body reduced eventually in the ground anyway? I mean, you either get burned or you get eaten by earthworms. So what's the difference? So the, the idea, though, is that the resurrection body does correspond in some way to our present body. And, you know, what shapes our body? We, we are so materialist that we think our body shape and all features in this body are there because, oh, well, something is to do my DNA. Well, that's true. But that's not sufficient because the DNA dies at death. So the shape of our bodies are our expressions. There must be some continuity there with a resurrection body. We don't know what it is. I mean, think, for example, in Jesus' case. His his natural body disappears. There's no mass left. There's not even ashes on the tomb that we we reported. There's not a scratch. I mean, the funeral parlor would be uh, in trouble because the body disappeared here. Where did it go? And then, when you look at his resurrection body, what do you see on his hands? Uh, you see the scar on his side. So, doesn't it look like the resurrection body does have a continuity with the natural body? Yeah. But then there's all kinds of neat questions. I mean, what does the age of the, na- of the resurrection body look like? And I thought one of the neatest speculations I ever heard was the same age Adam and Eve looked like when they were created. Young adults. Um, that's just the way God made the body to start with. So, it presumed that that was the old creation, then the new creation. Isn't that a relief for everybody? Um, <laughs> what happens to babies who were born and then died before they ever reached adulthood? Presumably the same thing. So it's all speculation. All we have by way of fact is what we read about Jesus' body because that's the only one we've ever seen. About the earthworms. <laughs> no, what happens to the rapture? Okay, so what's the timing of us getting resurrected bodies? What's the condition of us when we are face to face with Christ? Are we in a resurrected body? Or is our body still on the ground that's going to come later? Or... Oh, you mean at death? The oh, at the rapture? Well, yeah, both. 
Okay, well, there's a, there's a, there's a sequence here. The good question uh, Dee asked about the sequence of what, what happens when we die, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Um, and, and then what about the resurrection? Well, clearly in the resurrection, uh, in the rapture, in the, which is the resurrection, and there's a transformation. In 1 Thessalonians, remember Paul says that those who are alive and remain till the day of the rapture, they're instantly transformed. That's another interesting point. At the, at the rapture, you're walking around in a mortal body, and then in an instant of time, it's transformed into an immortal one. What happened to the mass and the molecules of the previous body? It looks like they get transformed rather than being created ex nihilo. Um, so maybe these resurrection bodies are literally created out of mass from the earth or something. I don't know. I don't know. But there is that transform that occurs. Now, at the rapture, then, Paul says, those who are asleep, those who have already died, then they receive the resurrection body. So that no one receives any resurrection bodies until that first resurrection starts. It hasn't started yet. And Jesus is the first echelon of the resurrection. And then it moves out from there. Um, what body do we have when we are die? That theologians usually call the intermediate body. We don't know what it is. Because Paul, remember when Paul said that he reports that experience he had when he went to the third heaven and he, he puzzled himself by what happened there and he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. So it's like, it's like apparently you feel like you have your body but it's not your resurrection body. What kind of a body is it? I have no idea. But, it, but it's there and the example of it is... Um, you have an example in the Old Testament. Remember the Witch of Endor story where Saul seeks the witch and she goes through her conjuring and conjugating and she's going to conjure up the spirit from the dead and, and then she, whoops, all of a sudden there is a spirit from the dead which shows she's probably a phony because obviously she wasn't expecting what happened. And all of a sudden what happened? Samuel appears uh, from the dead and, all, and he's wearing clothes. That always intrigued me. I mean, if you have an intermediate body, where do you get the clothes from for it? But you have it. You're not nude. So that's comforting. Um, so in this intermediate body state, it appears we have, uh, we have a clothing and it's sort of like a body, but it's not the resurrection body that happens at that the rapture forward. Christ, in Jesus' case? Well, apparently it was true. Even the body's gone, it could be either transformed or gone. Well, the problem is where did it... See, it looks like from the evidence of the grave and the empty tomb that Jesus' natural body was actually transformed. Much like Paul says it's going to happen at the rapture for those who are still alive. In an instant, he says, in an instant you'll be transformed. So it's not like you have a thousand bodies left over. I mean, think about it. If, if the resurrection body is not related to the present body in that case, why don't you have the debris of the present bodies lying around? You don't. It's gone. So that seems to me to argue that it's a transform of some sort. 
But it's weird because, like Debbie pointed out, what do you do with all people who died? I have no idea. But you remember you have this passage in the book of Revelation, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And, uh, and that's talking about drowning people. And I guess you have to say for the people burned to death or people killed in war, incinerated in the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that the earth will give it back. Because after all, in the final analysis, what's that wonderful picture that we have in Genesis? <clears throat> and God reaches down in the dirt and he molds the body and he breathes into it. And so he's, he's taking from the earth. We are people of the earth. But in the resurrection body, it's said that whatever this resurrection body is, it's also of heaven. Now, what that means, you know, we'll have all eternity to digest. But at least, D, you won't have to worry about aspirins and pain in the resurrection body. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a source of endless speculation, but it's good that we think in these terms, even just tossing these kinds of questions around people, um, cleans our minds of any super, of, of denying the, the, the physicalness of it. Yes, we can't answer the questions, but your questions are very good because they focus your thinking that this is a physical body we're talking about. Not like Karl Barth and Bultmann and all the liberal guys that yak yak endlessly about this resurrection. And all they're talking about is hallucination. This is not a hallucination. I know of none, Dee, about organ donations. I know of none. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Medical science. Yeah. I, I don't see that it, because the body, the material body, is destroyed, and it's not being done out of disrespect. In those cases, um, it's done an act of love's concern. I mean, my son's in medical school. What has he done? The first whole semester, he's digging somebody's cadaver. He has his middle man, and every he takes him apart. Every week, he's taking something apart, and that's how he learns the human anatomy. I don't think I don't like the idea of someone taking me apart. <laughs> but the worms will do it if the medical students don't. So. Okay, I think we've speculated enough tonight. <laughs>